Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have demonstrated very clearly and continue to demonstrate your love very clearly in that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sin even while we were still enemies and rebellious, having our own agenda. Thank you that you have rescued us from our sin and the consequences of our sin. You've rescued us from our own agenda and given us a fresh, new, real, eternal agenda. Help us now to humble ourselves before you, to worship you by your Spirit, considering your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I have a friend. We'll call him, for the sake of this illustration, Doug. If you... If you don't know Doug, you you might not know how incredibly talented he is. He can play many, many stringed stringed instruments, including what I, I like to call his baby guitar, properly called a mandolin, as well as a regular guitar and, and some other funny things. One of them's like a wooden thing and he plays it. I don't know, I don't know what it's called. I was trying to figure it out. Yeah, he knows what it is. That's one of his talents that that you would recognize only if you knew him. Uh, He's also a a master carpenter. And you would know that if you walked into my office and looked at my bookshelves that are built into my wall, handcrafted. You would also recognize his incredible abilities if you looked at the wall behind me. Uh, that That was something that This man I'm calling Doug uh, learned how to do from someone I know. We'll call him Tony. Um, And and they just crafted this wall behind us. What you would also not know is that if you asked him for some, some artistry, some drawings of Native American chiefs, and he pulled those out, you would say, I can't believe that you can do all of this. You would be kind of dumbfounded. If you didn't know him you wouldn't know all of those, those skills, those, those wonderful things that he can do. But when you know him, you start to see those things come out. And one of the worst things that can happen is if our skills and those things that we've been gifted with are hidden. When you have something truly special to offer to others, you should not keep it hidden. And that really is at the heart of this next section of the book of Philippians chapter 2. I draw your attention there, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So a basic outline of this passage would look something like this. Number one, work out your own salvation. Number two, don't complain or fight. Number three, hold fast to the Word of God. And number four, rejoice in sacrificial ministry. If this were the outline we were going to use, we'd spend a lot of time um, trying to discuss the details about how they, how they work together, how they intertwine, and how, how each subpoint lines up with those main ideas. But rather than, than do all of that detail work, we're going to do something a little bit different. And we're going to have a nine-point outline. The benefit of a nine-point outline is that each, each item will be succinct and easy to follow. And so while this would be a very good outline to, to get the gist of this passage, what we're going to do is try to break that down a little bit so we have a better sense of all of the working parts that Paul has included here. It'll give us an easier grasp on the passage. We're going to continue to use the term gospel culture that we've been using these last few weeks. Remember, we are not trying to adapt ourselves to the culture around us. The gospel produces its own unique culture. And our world needs to see this culture, this gospel culture, on display. And thus, the the title of our study this morning is The Gospel on Display. There are nine elements of this gospel culture that we'll see in these verses of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2. The first of which is this. Gospel culture is not based upon a super saint. Gospel culture is not based upon a super saint. Now, we saw this point already in the book of Philippians. So we're, we're taking that point from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 and kind of reiterating it with different wording. When we looked at it in ver, uh, chapter 1, take a look at chapter 1 and verse 27, where Paul makes this charge, he says, Only let your manner of life, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we looked at that passage back in Philippians chapter 1, we captured the idea with this expression. Gospel culture does not need the presence of a spiritual guru. And that concept has been reiterated for us here in chapter 2 in verse 12. God must be trying to point something out to us. Our faith, our walk with the Lord, our clinging to the Gospel, our walk in the Gospel is not based upon a man unless, unless that man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus 
God is always with you, wherever you go. So whether Paul is there or not, God is. Whether I'm there or not, God is. Whether you're in my presence or not, I'm still accountable to God. That's that's the reality. And so our walk in the Gospel is really a walk that takes place in the shadows and in the spotlight. In your home, when all of your children go to bed, and when they're all awake. See, the hypocrisy that can come when we only do what's right when people are around is eliminated by true gospel living. And gospel culture is not based upon a super saint. Back in chapter 1 and verse 27, where I just had you read, what was Paul's main instruction to the church in that verse? He's telling them that regardless of anything else, their life should demonstrate the gospel. That they should strive with one mind, one spirit for the gospel. They should strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That takes place in our homes. That takes place in the church. It takes place in the workplace. You see, we're not dependent upon someone to check up on us. We don't need some super accountability in order to walk in the power of the Spirit. We just need to know that God is present. He's not just present because He's omnipresent. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He dwells within you. He inhabits you. That's incredible. The God of the universe living inside of a peon like me. A broken A broken person like me, a weak person like me, God dwells in me. Just one of the reasons for many years on this back wall it said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as you walked in this morning on the screens, you saw Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the reason that we walk. We walk because Christ is in us. And we'll see that developed further as we move along. A second element of gospel culture that is also introduced in verse 12, is this. Gospel culture fosters, encourages, a desire for obedience. Gospel culture fosters or encourages a desire for obedience. Look again in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, have they obeyed in every second of their lives? Are they sinners? So he's not saying that they're flawless. What he's saying is, as you've always sought since your conversion, since you've come to Christ, since you've known of the Gospel, since you've always sought to obey the truth of the Word, continue therein. Listen, you can't have a Gospel culture that doesn't care what God says. We don't form some theology that alienates the words of God. The theology that we communicate the gospel that we meditate on and the gospel that, and the theology that we want to live out are those things that are contained within the pages of Scripture because God has written these things. And so, true gospel culture cares deeply what God has said. This expression, always obeyed, should bring our minds back to the last paragraph. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. Obedient to the point of what? Death. Even a cross death. A death on a cross. A crucifixion kind of death. An alienating kind of death. A foolishness kind of death. A stumbling block kind of death. A humiliating kind of death. The Lord Jesus' obedience was a selfless, life-giving death, a life-giving obedience, and it is the basis of the Gospel. The reason we've been redeemed is because of the obedience to the point of death, even the death on the cross kind of obedience that Christ demonstrated. As you have always obeyed, it's pointing us back to our Savior, our Head, our Master, right? That's whom we love. That's whom we trust. And that is, by God's grace, whom we emulate. Thirdly, gospel culture is to be on display. Gospel culture is to be on display. Look what it says again in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. We're going to come back to that. That work out your own salvation. For, but first, we want to talk about this fear and trembling bit. What, what are you saying here, Paul? God, what are you saying with fear and trembling? Do, do I have to live my life in terror? But I want to draw your attention to usage of this elsewhere. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's very helpful to see this passage where Paul uses this same expression and what the context of that expression is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says this, and Paul is the penman here. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in what? And in fear and much trembling. In fear and much trembling. Same expression. But what's the context? My speech, verse 4, and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith, and mine, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's expressing to us the need that we understand exactly what we are preaching when we're working our salvation to the outside, when the, the, the Gospel is working its way out to an expression, we recognize that we do this with a reverence for the source and substance of that message. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not because I'm wondering, oh, I might not make it. Oh man, if I don't do good enough, if I'm not obedient enough, if I don't humble myself enough, if I don't blah, blah, blah enough, I might not make it. That is anti-gospel. That is not what Paul's getting at. He's drawing our attention. He's drawing our attention 
to what that salvation really is. You didn't provide it. You didn't earn it. And you sure cannot maintain it. You have experienced, if you have, salvation out of the goodness, mercy, grace, love, and kindness of Almighty God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now, Peter uses a related expression. He doesn't use these same words, but he communicates the same concept. And so I want to draw your attention there. Now, this will be on the screen. Here's what, what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But in your hearts, honor, see that concept of reverence, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other versions, it's sanctify the Lord as God in your heart, or sanctify God in your heart, right? We, we, we know that expression. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see how that is a very similar concept to what's going on in 1 Corinthians 2? The relation is this humility, this this awe of the message and the work of God, and then the desire to articulate it to those that are in desperate need of hearing it. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 2. It's what's going on in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's what's happening in Philippians chapter 2. God wants us to see, to see, to hear, to experience the working of a majestic, glorious, powerful, saving God. And who is he addressing? People like me. People like you, people in the first century that held a treasure in earthen vessels, don't hold it inside. Let it be on display for a world so they also will fear, so they also will be in awe, so they also will admire, so they also will love and appreciate and understand the great mercy and kindness, and power of God. Don't hide it. The gospel must be on display. We should recognize the seriousness of the message. We should recognize the power of the message. We should recognize the source of the message. It is God himself. He says to work it out. Work it to the outside. Now, the Lord Jesus spoke about this as well. Take a look there in Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. For many of us, this will remind us of our Sunday school days. We may have even sung a song about this, but it is far more of a powerful message and an important call than just a little ditty that we learned when we were kids. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, Jesus said to his disciples, You are the light of the world. Now, did Jesus also say at another point that I am the light of the world? Is there any 
any important relationship between Jesus being the light of the world and His disciples being the light of the world? Yes. We're not the light of the world because we're special. We're the light of the world because He is. For them and for us. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. If they did, it'll light on fire. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they will see your good works and tell you how spectacular you are. That's the good news version. It's not. Sorry. They will see your good works and glorify or give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, the whole thing is not about shining a light on me. And, and folks, it's not even about shining a light on the church that we love. It's nice. I want, I want people to know that we represent Christ, but that's not the light that we're pointing to. We're not pointing to the church. We're pointing to the Savior of the church. His name is Jesus. Do you know Him? Has He saved you? Did the church save you? Did I save you? Did somebody else save you? No, no, no. Jesus Himself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've come to, to saving faith in Christ, you have eternal life, it's because of what Jesus has done. And so, when we point people to something, when we demonstrate the Gospel, it always, always results in either the condemnation of Jesus or the praise of Jesus. Yes? Because the world doesn't always accept the light that we give as something wonderful. Sometimes they think it is despised. That's okay too. Jesus has big enough shoulders to handle that. He's not quibbling or worrying in heaven. Oh, I wonder if they'll accept me. Will they embrace me? He's not powerless that way. That is a man-made religion that talks that way. God is glorious. God is and will continue to be glorified. His will will be accomplished. What you and I want to do is to shine the light on that glory that is in Jesus and in our Father who is in heaven. It is much easier for us to just blend in. It is much easier to laugh at people's foolish comments. It is much easier to complain along with others as they criticize their boss, the government, or a fellow employee. If you had to guess, if you had to guess what is at the heart of displaying the gospel, could you narrow it down to anything particular? I want you to think about that for a moment. So here we're talking about working out the salvation we're going to talk about that God has worked in us, okay? We're working to the outside, the salvation that God has worked in us. What does that look like? Is there anything that the Bible gives us as a, a reservoir to tell us what that will look like? I hope you have an answer in your mind. Take a look, please, at Galatians chapter 5. Look with me, please, at verses 22 and 23. 
God's Word says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Folks, this is what gospel culture looks like. Gospel culture looks like this. Why would you or I feel confident that this is at the heart of this call? I want you to think about what happens at the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. I want to list a few things. When when you come to the place where you recognize yourself to be a sinner, and that your sin is warranting for you eternal punishment separated from God forever in the lake of fire. And you come to recognize that Jesus, though He was perfect in every way and obedient perfectly, laid down His life becoming sin for you and for me. He took our sin upon Himself, was condemned indeed for our sin, was judged for our sin, was buried, raised again by God the Father, God the Spirit, and by Himself. He was risen. He has risen in newness of life to provide you with eternal righteousness. At the moment you trust Christ alone for your salvation, your sin is eternally blotted out. Your sin is eternally removed. You'll never give an account for sin because it's taken care of. Also at that moment, the righteousness that Jesus accrued during His life on earth in perfect obedience to the law, to His parents, to the law of the land, all of that is credited on your eternal account. You've been made righteous. These are good things. At the same instant, God baptizes you, not with water, that's, a, that's an outward sign, baptizes you with His Spirit. In other words, God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. Now that is described in both 2 Corinthians and the book of Ephesians as a down payment. You know what a down payment is? It's a little foretaste of what's to come. The bank wants to know, you're good for this? Yeah, look, here's a first installment. There's more to come. And every month, Lord willing, you make your payment. And they're getting a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until it's all paid and they sign it off and say, okay, that property is now yours. It's a down payment. Well, for Christians, we don't get any more of the Holy Spirit in this life. You get that down payment, and it's a foretaste of what heaven is like. It's a foretaste of what heaven is like. And what does that foretaste look like? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Okay, That's what that foretaste is like. So what do you think heaven's like? It's that on steroids. 24 hours a day. Seven days a week for eternity. That's what heaven's like. We've got a a foretaste. If we're going to work the salvation to the outside that God has worked inside, guess what it looks like? The Spirit's working. 
You want people not to say, boy, you're a swell dude. You want them to say, wow, you're, you really have peace in the midst of difficulty. You really have joy when you have no business having joy. How can you tolerate that person next to you that keeps on pestering you? That's patience or long-suffering, right? How, how can you do it? It's, it's working to the outside that which God has worked in you, the fruit of the Spirit. So when he says to work it out, it's really to let the light of the Spirit, the truth of the Word, come out. Here's a fourth, as we head back to the book of Philippians chapter 2, a fourth element of gospel culture that we see in this passage. This gospel culture is based upon the working of God. Gospel culture is based on the working of God. Now this is an interesting section here because... In, in verse 12, he, he makes demands, right? Demands. As you have always obeyed, so now, not as in my presence only, but also in my, or much more in my absence, work out, work out your own salvation. This is your deal. And, and do it with fear and trembling. It sounds very human, right? Well, it is. There's, 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 there's human element to that. God wants what He's doing to come out, right? That's, that's the requirement. There's the demand. In verse 13, we have the source or the supply, right? The supply of meeting that demand. Our gospel culture that God is, is calling for is based upon His work. Verse 13, look what it says. For it is God who works in you. Look up, please. Both to will, will, and to work for His good pleasure. Both to desire and to do. God is working in you. Are you a believer? God is working in you. Being confident of this very thing. That He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Work to the outside your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. This is good news. And he brings it home in chapter 3, verse 20 and following. He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we look for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When He comes, He will change our vile body to be made like unto His glorious body. And He finishes it off by saying, He will do this by the power of God by the power by which he subdues all things to himself. This work is dependent upon whom? Him! Hallelujah, because I fail. Hallelujah, because sometimes I flat out stink. Don't you? Please tell me you believe that. Please tell me you don't look at yourself and say, boy, you're... You, You are one special person. You you want to build up your self-esteem. You look at yourself in the mirror. You are powerful. You are good. You are strong. You're stronger than you think you are. You're smarter than you think you are. That's a little Winnie the Pooh thing. No, you don't need those little pep talks in the mirror. I bite. He's great. And guess what? He's working in me. Great. Great. Rejoicing. What does he use to work in us? 
Well, he uses the Word to work in us, doesn't he? He uses the Spirit to work in us, doesn't he? He uses circumstances, sometimes good ones, and sometimes not good ones to work in us. And he uses the body of Christ, the people. He uses people to work in us. God is at work, and he uses means. He works through the Word. He works through His Spirit. He works through our trials, through our difficulties, through our pain, through our sorrow. God's works, God works through His people. What is He doing? What's He doing? What, what is this work? He is changing our affections. You know what an affection is? Our heart's desires. He's changing our affections. And he's changing our actions. So I ask you, what comes first? Our working out of our salvation or God's working in of our salvation? It's a pretty easy answer because you can't work out that which is not there. You cannot work out a salvation that God has not granted to you. So the first thing that takes place is God works something in us. And then he works it out of us. Because if, if, if you're saying you want to work it to the outside, right? Work it to the outside so it can be seen and felt tangibly. And God affects our affections. or He affects our affections. You like that one? And then he impacts our actions. Who really is working it to the outside? Well, he is, but he's making us willing. He's making us willing. He's working it, but then there's the action that comes out. There's a great, a great statement by John Murray, not Andrew Murray, John Murray. It'll be on the screens to my left and right. It's on two slides because it's, it's somewhat long. Listen to what he says. This is, this is hearty. It's like a good stew. God's working in us is not suspended because we work. Nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did His part and we do ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produce the required result. Stop right there. You gathering it? I know the first part's very easy to understand, that last sentence. It's not like God does His part, you do your part, and everything will work out fine. God works, and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. Listen carefully to this last part. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. He wills in us. And He works through us. This is the call. To surrender our minds to Him. 
that he may give us these affections that are, first of all, truly satisfying, and secondly, truly productive. We move on to a fifth element of gospel culture. Gospel culture seeks God's pleasure above our own. This is the last phrase of verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work, say it with me please, for His good pleasure. Now, this portion reminds us of what Paul has already said in this chapter that we desperately need as a people. To have a proper gospel culture, I can't be constantly seeking my own agenda and the things that please me well. And so it brings us back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Look there, please. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. This is a demand, and this is the kind of thing that God is working in so we can work it out, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what happens when God is working in us to work His salvation out of us is our pleasures are not our first agenda. And so we're all sitting here kind of squirming. If you're not, you've got real problems. Every day, every day you and I struggle with our own agenda. Every day we struggle with our own pleasures. I know what I want. I want, guess it, ready? Pizza. And my wife wants us on paleo. They both have peas. But only one of them has crust. My wife made a delicious smelling sauce yesterday. And that sauce is for after we leave. So if you're hungry, I'm sorry, I'm having some delicious sauce. The sauce is paleo. And guess what? The pasta is red lentil pasta. Sounds gross, doesn't it? <laughs> Thankfully, it's delicious. It's outstanding. If you have not had red lentil pasta, do yourself a favor. And I hope I get some, uh, some kickback from Trader Joe's on this. Go to Trader Joe's and buy some red lentil pasta. Don't go to the other very, very expensive whole-ish foods place. Uh-oh. Might get some problems with that one. Go to Trader Joe's and get some organic red lentil pasta. And you'll, you'll, you'll eat, you'll cook it up, and you'll be like, boy, I've never tasted a fake pasta that tasted as, almost as good as pasta. I got way off track there because I'm thinking about lunch. No, because we're talking about pleasures, and I like food. And when I can eat crust, I'm happy, or the bread that goes with it. or well, Pleasures. Every day we struggle with them. Yours is probably not food. You've got some other problem. But you know what it is. You struggle with it every day. So it's easy to talk about our agenda being changed and seeking God's pleasure instead of our own. But like then we have to actually live real life. And we sense our pleasure, the things we want. And that's when we have to say, Dear God, I know you say you work in me to affect my affections, 
please do it now. Please do it now when I'm having this desire for conflict, this desire for some material possession. Whatever it is that's taking your affections away, whatever is causing a conflict in your home, God, my affections are negatively impacted because of my pleasures. God is at work, though, and He's not done, and He promises to continue this work. We see this this kind of willingness to, to give up our own personal desires for the betterment of others in the person of our Savior. We, just, we know it. It's always going to be Him. In Romans 15.3, this passage just screams to me, and I hope to you regularly, for Christ did not please Himself. But Christ did not please Himself. But as it is written, instead, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus took the reproaches of those reproaching Him. That's, that's unfathomable. Christ didn't seek His own pleasure. His meat was to do the will of Him who sent Him and to finish His work. That's what happens when God is at work in us. Is, is we, we, God develops within us new affections. So we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis because it, it waffles, right? Whose pleasure am I living for? Gospel culture this culture that we're supposed to be establishing in our homes and in our church, God's church here, is one that seeks God's glory, God's pleasure above our own. Sixthly, gospel culture displays our faith in God's sovereignty. Now that doesn't really look like like what verse 14 looks like, does it? So here's my statement. My statement is not gospel, okay? My statement is not God's word. And I'm not trying to compete. I'm trying to be clear. Gospel culture displays our faith in God's sovereignty. Now I want to read the verse of Scripture that I'm tagging it to. And you have to decide. You've got to judge what I'm saying in accordance with what is actual truth. Certainly truth. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. The two statements don't sound alike, do they? But I want to tell you that so far as my understanding of this passage, the statement is helpful for us to understand exactly what God, through Paul, is trying to communicate to us. In verse 15, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32.5. Listen to what he says in verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent... Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In Deuteronomy 32.5, I'm just going to give you a little snippet of it. They are blemished. They are crooked. Excuse me. They are a crooked and twisted generation. He's, He's definitely calling our attention back to the complaining element of the people of Israel. Now, if you think about the people of Israel... They're in Egypt, and they groan, and God hears their cry, and He sends a deliverer, Moses, with delivering plagues, the ten plagues, including the last plague, the death of the firstborn, and He sends a delivering covering for them, 
sacrifice the animal, put the blood on the lentil of the door and the post of the door, and I'll pass over you. And God delivers them from the land of Egypt. And they come out, and Pharaoh's like, I made a mistake. We need our servants back. And so he chases them down, and they come to the Red Sea, and the people start beefing already. They're complaining. What are we going to do now? You brought us out here to kill us. They're complaining to Moses, right? Who's their complaint really against? God. Then they're, they're in the wilderness after they, God miraculously sends them through the Red Sea. And, and every day God provides them with manna. What is it? Well, it's a wafer-like sweet substance that's bready. Right? So every day they have something to eat. Well, we don't like this bread. Give us some meat. Moses, can't you do better than this? So God sends them quail until they were so sick of it it was coming out of their ears, theoretically. And then they're thirsty and they complain to Moses, why don't you give us something to drink? And so God tells Moses to speak to the rock and the rock you know, sends out water, they have something to drink. Beef, beef, beef. Complain, complain, complain. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Who's their real complaint against? It's against God. And so it is with us. Who orchestrates your life? That spouse, those children, those neighbors, those co-workers, that limping pastor. Who does all this? God does. You know, you look at Psalm 139 and you see how God orchestrates our lives from our embryonic stage through our structure stage. And before we were ever born, God has all our days numbered before there was ever even one of them. You look at Acts chapter 17, and it says that God predetermines our appointed places and seasons, the boundaries of our dwelling. It's in Him we live and move and have our being. So like, when you were born, how many days you live, where you're born, all in His hands. The Bible talks about God's gracious calling, bringing us out of darkness into light. Who does that? God does. When? When He deems fit. It's all in His hands. So it is with your spouse. Maybe they're irritating sometimes. Maybe you're more irritating. So with those kids. Maybe they're a handful at times. Maybe so are you. Maybe your neighbors aren't the most kindly. Maybe you're not either. When we complain, we're really complaining against our Creator and Sustainer and the one who orchestrates our lives. When we're fighting, what are we really fighting? See, he says murmuring, do do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word disputing is dialogismos. You knew what that meant. Dialogue. It can mean dialogue inside. It can mean dialogue outside. It can mean inner fighting. It can mean external fighting. So we're going we're to seek some help from James because James really helps us with this. God does through James. James 4.1 What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? I'm going to think about that. This is, this is huge. Listen to this statement. It's mine. It's not like hugely revelatory, but it's important. Before we are at peace with others, 
We must be at peace within ourselves. Before we are at peace within ourselves, we must be at peace with God. When you have a fight out there, it's because you have a fight in here and it reveals that you really have a fight right there. Please embrace it. Please know it. It's the truth. Gospel culture displays our faith in God's sovereignty. When we are fighting with others, when we're murmuring and complaining, it reveals we have a problem with the Lord. And you know what that does? You know that light you want burning bright? You're putting it under a bowl. It snuffs it out. There's nothing for anyone to see. That is not the gospel lived out. That's you lived out. That's me lived out. And you know what? Nobody needs another me around. What they need is Christ. What they need is to see the gospel. Seventh. A seventh element of gospel culture. Gospel culture shines in the midst of darkness. Look what it says again in verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent... Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine, shine as lights in the world. The idea is, is like you look out in the sky and you see these, these bodies of light. And they, they, they're kind of pretty. They're kind of spectacular. And if they're arranged just so, you can say, oh, there's... Orion, and there's whatever this other thing is called. You see these glorious constellations that, that are in the sky. They shine, and they're, we know from Philipp, uh, Psalm 19 that they, they point to the handiwork of God. But there's something that is broadcasting light, and it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's kind of the idea that he's getting at here. You, what you need to do, what, what we need to do as we, we live out the gospel, is that we don't complain and fight. But instead, we offer a shining light in the midst of darkness. Peter talked a lot about that, and I want you to look there, please. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter talks a lot about a coming persecution to the people of God at that time, and it stands as a helpful reminder to us. And he lets them know what they ought to do when people have negative things to say about you and your faith in Christ and Christ Himself. It's easy to be a fighter. He doesn't tell us to do that. He tells us to do something different. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the fleshly passions, excuse me, from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Now he uses that as short you know, as, a, as an expression to mean those that are outside, non-believers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day on the day of visitation. He doesn't just say it there. He also says it again in verse 15. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then in chapter 3, 
We already mentioned verse 15, so let's just look at verses 16 and 17. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And it brings us full circle back to what we've mentioned in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Gospel culture shines, shines. We do right in the workplace. We do right in our home. We do right in the marketplace. We do right on the roads. We do right in the law courts. We do right when it's time to pay our taxes, folks. I know, dreaded taxes are coming. And you don't like the way they're used. None of us do. Well, maybe you do, I don't know. Most of us don't. Your responsibility and mine is to do right. To live honestly, even when our tax money is used in a way that we are repulsed by. Don't cheat the system. Do what's right. Jesus paid taxes. If he could do it in that crooked and perverse generation, so also can we. An eighth element back in Philippians chapter 2. Gospel culture is based upon the Word of God. Gospel culture is based upon the Word of God. Now we have an interesting phrase as he starts verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. It could also be read, holding forth the word of life. Both of them, it could be translated. It's very difficult to determine which one is accurate. Because the whole context here is to display, right? Display to the outside the working that God has put in you. To shine forth. So to to hold forth holds a lot of weight in that context, right? But so also does holding fast to it in order that our lifestyle is shaped by it. So you've got to make a choice. I have no problem in this instance saying, let's just take both of them. Let's hold on to what God says. It's the source of our life. And it is the guiding pathway that, that God has revealed for us. And hold it out, the word of life, so that others can see it. Certainly we cannot hold out the word toward others if we do not hold fast to it ourselves. Our thoughts, speech, and behavior must be governed by what the Bible says. We must hold ourselves accountable to the demands of Scripture if we're going to maintain a gospel culture. The Bible establishes our order of operations. The Bible establishes our order of operations. Thankful as we read, study, and meditate on the Word of God and surrender our will to God Himself, He is faithful to transform our minds. He is at work within us to change our affections and our actions. Finally, number nine. You didn't think we were going to get there, but we are. Gospel culture rejoices at the fruitfulness of God. Verses 16 and following. Holding fast to the word of life, 
so that. I want you to hold fast to the word of life so that. In the day of Christ, that's the judgment day, I may be proud. Well, that's not something that you generally hear from Paul. That I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Well, what's his, what's his goal? So that he can feel really good about himself? No. So that, that the people that have embraced the gospel would have demonstrated that they were genuinely saved, redeemed people. I can rejoice that God has produced an enduring treasure for himself in heaven. Hold fast to the word of life because that demonstrates that you're one of God's. So he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, even if I have to die upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, even if I have to die for your faith to be an enduring, eternal faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice in the declaration and the demonstration and the display of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel must be not hidden but displayed individually and corporately. We do it daily. There's a lot in this passage. What should we leave here with on the forefront of our minds? There are people in the world, though they do not know it, that crave, that crave the unique culture that is formed by the gospel. It is our job not to hide this culture. It is our job not to distort this culture by adapting it to the society around us. This gospel culture that we're talking about, this gospel culture relinquishes our own desire to please ourselves and relishes the opportunity to please our Savior. This is what we put on display. This life is not about me. My life is not about me. My life is Christ. By God's grace, you and I must, must have this mindset formed by the Word of God, formed by the power of God Himself. Let's pray together. Father, we need You. Please put on display in us and through us the truth of the Gospel for Your glory for the good of mankind, for the good of our society, for the betterment of the church, and for the furtherance of the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.